Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross, and for one last time in this 2022 season, we will break down a big ATP final on this Monday. Novak Djokovic, for the sixth time, wins the ATP finals for the first time in seven years, for the first time in Turin. He defeats Kasparud in the final. He does it in straight sets, 7-5, 6-3. With the limited schedule that Djokovic has played, the limited opportunities there have been for him, every big event has felt like it's more important. I mean, that Wimbledon felt like a must-win. Less opportunities, it's increased the importance of every single one. And now that he has this title in the bag, I think it's fair to look back at Djokovic's body of work in 2022 and basically conclude that he couldn't have done any better. You're pretty much there. This is how I like to look at it. This is how I like to frame it. It took him three tournaments to get going, to find his form, understandably. Let's say he started to be his best in Madrid. Which I think is fair. I think anybody who saw him in Dubai and Belgrade and Monte Carlo would agree that he wasn't. Uh, let's say he was his best in Madrid. You have six big tournaments, including Madrid, from that point on in the season, on the calendar for Novak. And he won three of them. Rome, Wimbledon, ATP Finals. Three out of six... Three out of five since Madrid, obviously. It doesn't get much better than that. Amazing. On this week's Monday Match Analysis, we're going to break down how Novak Djokovic uh, gained a, a really large baseline advantage over Kasparud. There were patterns in this match that were working for him over and over and over again. At the end... I will go through every single player in the ATP Finals and give them a grade out of 10. I just want to kind of recap what we saw this week and kind of close the book on, on each player. I'll give them a grade 1 out of 10 relative to expectations, my opinion of how they looked and how they did. But match analysis is coming up right after this. This week's Monday Match Analysis is brought to you by APEAK. It's an AI-driven, science-based performance app designed to make you a better tennis player. And based on their data, 98% of players who utilized AP consistently for 5 to 10 minutes per day, at least 4 days a week, improved their performances and their UTR ratings over the course of 3 months. Now they're offering a 14-day free trial with the link in the description, but you're probably wondering... How does this work? So let me tell you a bit about its features. You start by creating a meaningful purpose for playing tennis. This is your foundation. And I'm going to pop mine right up on the screen. You get a personalized mental training plan based on your needs. You improve self-awareness through journaling. Customize your pre-match preparation. Increase your tactical awareness to quickly adapt and adjust while you play. 
and develop mindfulness and cultivate a sense of genuine calm with tennis specific meditations that the app will guide you through. There's also tons of great content posted on APEAC from their experts. These are weekly resources with highlights for matches, interviews, and articles for you to learn from. Lastly, I want to tell you about the crown jewel, the APEAC mentorship program. You get one-on-one -on -one guidance from an APEAC mental performance expert through scheduled video calls and anytime text messages. And for a limited time, APEAC is offering a one-time 20-minute free consultation, which is usually a $70 value. APEAC offers all of these amazing tennis tools for all players in an affordable and accessible manner. These advanced training tools are no longer only available for just the professionals. Now with APEAC, you can train like the pros and elevate your game to a place it's never been. Click the link in the description for that 14-day free trial to get started. I thought Djokovic was in trouble at the start of this match. The first 10 or 15 minutes, he did not look good physically. But he ended up getting better. And I'll come back to that at the end. Because it's kind of an interesting aspect to all of this. But I want to start with some of the technical dynamics. And I thought in these conditions, which have been so server-friendly and just so fast, that the serve-return dynamic was going to play a huge role here. And that the match was likely going to hinge on who won those short points. That's not really what happened. Rally length stats in this one. Four-point edge for Djokovic in the 0-8 through eight shot rallies. 47-43. to 43. Now imagine if we play Connect Four or Tic-Tac-Toe or Checkers, and I win 47 times, you win 43 times. We're basically the same. Put yourself in that mindset, right? We're basically even. I just played a little better. Uh, I, I've edged you out. Let's say um, we go to the nine plus shot rallies, nine or more. Djokovic had an 11 point edge, 16 to five. Now, if we play 21 games of chess and I win 16 and you win five, now we're talking about a real discernible skill gap. That is significant. So it's undoubtedly the longer rallies that allowed Djokovic to pull away in this match. Now, I do want to address the serve-return dynamic quickly, even if it's the less significant factor. Novak served better than Casper in the first set. Casper served better than Novak in the second set. That is what the, nu the numbers would flesh out. But at the end of the match, the returns in play statistics wound out about dead even. I do think that Djokovic was slightly better in the serve-return dynamic, though. And he was getting better plus-one opportunities on serve, and he was limiting the plus-one opportunities better on return. And the reason for this is actually going to connect to why Djokovic was winning the longer rallies. The reason for this, in large part, to me, is... Rude's tendency to slice. As a return, we generally don't say slice. We say block. We say chip. Same thing. Uh, the forehand return for Casper Rude is a block return. 
So the result of that is Rude hit topspin returns only 53% of the time. I believe that includes first serve returns and second serve returns, which means the vast majority of his first serve returns would have been a slice. I can't 100% confirm that. It comes from ATP's second screen service. Um, but regardless, for the match, 53% uh, of Root's returns were topspin. For Novak, 84% are topspin. The only time you're going to see Novak Djokovic chip the return is if he's trying to make a desperation return. He's on the full stretch, and he's trying to make a stab return off of a really great serve. So that means Djokovic's returns are coming with more pace. And that means Kasparud is under more pressure. He is more rushed on the plus one ball. Djokovic has more time. He's under less pressure. And he can be more efficient in his attack of that third shot. So I think there's a little bit of a difference there. And maybe that's why Djokovic did have that four-point edge in rallies zero through eight shots, however insignificant it is. These are the small details that I think help Novak. But now let's go to the rallies. As these points were developing, Djokovic's forehand made the difference. It was the biggest ground stroke on the court. And let's face it, that's not a good thing for Kasparud. If you were to pinpoint one thing that Rude maybe does better than Djokovic, could be the weight of shot on the forehand. And regardless of who Rude is playing, as long as it's a top player, that forehand better make a huge impact on the match. In this match, it didn't. It paled in comparison to the impact that Djokovic's forehand had on the match. Novak just had a great day on it. There's no doubt about it. Deadly accurate. He was hitting it huge, flat through the court, great depth, awesome timing when he had to change direction. It's as good as you'll ever see him hit his forehand. He was clubbing it. But also, because of Rude's posture in these baseline rallies, he tended to get pushed back. He was losing the court position battle. The further back you get, the more air you need to put under the ball, the more topspin you need to put under the ball. Rude was more often on the run. So he wasn't putting himself in positions to actually go after attacking forehands. It just felt like every time he settled into a rally, and part of this was the way he... He started the rallies, which we'll get into, some of the key ones. Uh, but every time he was in a rally, it just seemed like he was getting pushed back. And Djokovic's forehand was the hammer. And Kasparud was the nail. Novak was hitting flatter. He was hitting bigger. He was hitting deeper. And that was that. Forehand winners. Let's throw out this stat. 14-5 for Djokovic. I don't think Kasper can beat Novak unless he wins that stat. He needs to win that stat. Novak found patterns that he really liked on his forehand. And he found patterns on his forehand that were going to lead to more forehands. And with the forehand performing as it was, that was a really, really good thing. 
Rude's backhand defense wasn't working. That's what it came down to. It wasn't working. So every time Djokovic was able to attack the Rude backhand, which I think has been holding up very well in offensive positions, in neutral positions, in this match, it was exposed from a defensive standpoint. It was not good defensively. I thought it was fine in other aspects. The Kasparud backhand is one of the shots that has impressed me most out of any player in the field. But in this match, Novak brought out the improvements that are still to be had. Let me show you a point. Let me show you a point here. Uh, five all, 30-15. Rude is serving... Trying to force a first set tiebreak. This is a really key moment in the match. Uh, Djokovic is going to change direction with an aggressive forehand down the line. Root is on the run. He's defending on his backhand. He's going to hit a slice here. He's going to go cross court. Cross court slice. Now he's very far back in the court. And he's hitting a slice. And slice is slow. And that's going to give Djokovic a lot of time to use his footwork to hit a forehand here. Even though Rude's backhand is close to the right sideline in Djokovic's backhand corner. Novak's going to be able to move into the doubles alley to hit a forehand here. And Novak doesn't feel like he's ready quite yet to go full-out attack on the inside in. So what he's going to do, he's going to hit another inside-out forehand, and he's going to add some angle to this ball. But he doesn't hit it very hard. And honestly, it's not an overwhelming inside-out forehand. Rude has some time to work with. But once again, he is going to hit the slice backhand. Because he's hitting the slice backhand, Djokovic knows he's under no threat whatsoever. He doesn't need to worry about even recovering to the middle here. Because if Rude goes down the line, it's a slice. Again, he's deep in the court and it's a slice. There would be plenty of time for Djokovic to get all the way over, and hit a forehand. But Rude goes cross-court here. Of course, Djokovic is kind of waiting there. And one of the reasons why I liked to use this point is because Rude hit the perfect defensive slice. He could not have hit it in a better spot. It was deep as can be, right in Novak's backhand corner. Of course, Djokovic didn't hit a backhand here. You don't have to when Rude slices from that deep in the court. Novak hits a forehand inside in winner. So even a perfect neutralizing backhand slice, from that position at least, is not quite good enough. And that is exactly the point. Rude is in a place right now where he feels like when he's on the move to his left, he has to slice. And I think for years that was kind of the norm, but we're moving past that. Think Murray, Djokovic, Nadal, Medvedev, Zverev. When they're on the run on their backhand, they are all very, very proficient, and, prob and really nobody more proficient than Djokovic, at hitting the backhand with an open stance, the drive backhand with an open stance on the run. Rude doesn't have that shot. Novak knows that. 
So he's going to attack that backhand side with his forehand. But here's the catch. He's going to get it over and over and over and over again. Djokovic is going to keep getting forehands over and over and over again. So Rude just, he couldn't get out of it. And what's the goal of defense? The goal of defense is to get back to neutral in the point. Casper just couldn't get back to neutral with his defense. It wasn't happening. Um, he couldn't get Novak to hit a backhand. And, you know, really for Rude, what neutrality really looks like is when he can hit a forehand again. But the only forehands he would hit is when Djokovic attacked him into the forehand corner and he was defending. Um, so it was... Djokovic would pepper and pepper and pepper the backhand until the forehand was open. He'd go into the forehand. The point is, Rude wasn't neutralizing. There was zero neutralization. And that is why in these long rallies, uh, usually Djokovic was just in command of them. Um, I also want to talk about the last point to highlight kind of what I'm saying. The last point of this very game, this 5-6 game with Rude trying to force the tiebreak, which he did not. Uh, on the break point, 30-40, the first three shots that Rude hit were forehands. The last six were backhands. He hit six backhands in a row. Novak, in the same point, hit six forehands and two backhands. Djokovic forehand to Rude backhand. That was what was happening here. And that's just not good for Casper. It's really, really bad. Uh, the solution for Rude would have been a couple things. Would have been, first of all, be more aggressive early in the points. Be more aggressive when you get those forehands to ensure that you don't need to worry about backhands anymore. Uh, or you don't need to worry about playing defense, right? Just be more aggressive when you have that sliver of opportunity. Be assertive, bold, take some risk with your bread and butter, with that big forehand. Or you have to develop a, a backhand that is good enough uh, from defensive positions to get out of that hole, get out of that jail, and... Either, you know, basically eventually find yourself another forehand. Because Rude isn't going to win a lot of points on his backhand. He's winning them on his forehand. He just wants his backhand to set him up. But his backhand wasn't uh, wasn't doing that at all. In general, you're, you were looking at a Casper Rude that was too passive in this match. Against the the level that Djokovic was, was playing. At a certain point... Rude needs to realize that Djokovic's level was so high that he was going to have to he was going to have to play more aggressive. He was going to have to be better. Because in the second set, Kasper Rude served amazingly well and made no errors. He served amazingly well and made no errors. How do you still lose? You lose because Djokovic was bullying you, meaning uh, 
he wasn't making errors, but he was attacking. You weren't making errors because you were on defense and or unforced errors at least because you were constantly defending. Um, and that's why you weren't making unforced errors. So I would have liked to see more unforced errors from Rude. If anything, that would have shown that at least he was trying to rev up the potency of his game because Djokovic was so in charge. Now, the biggest mistake that Rude made in terms of his passivity was on second serve return. And this was disappointing because I I was just praising Kasper Rude for his second serve returning against Andre Rublev when he was aggressive with his feet to create forehands and rip those forehands. Didn't do that in this match. It was bizarre. Look at this five-all serve. This is what I'm talking about. Five-all, love-all, Djokovic serving. He hits this second serve slow, not particularly deep, in the middle third of the service box, Rude is standing deep. He's got both his feet in the doubles alley. And he just stands there and hits a backhand. This second serve from Djokovic was 139 Ks. Novak Djokovic averaged 86 miles per hour on his second serves in this match. And Rude was doing nothing to try to take advantage of that. He had plenty of time on this particular serve, and this happened all throughout the match, to hit a forehand. Get your big boy weapons in play. Kasparu didn't do that. He hits this backhand. He hits it short. He hits it slow. And where do you think Djokovic is going to go? He's got an attacking forehand. He's going to go to the rude backhand. He goes to the rude backhand. What's rude going to do? He's going to slice... And now we begin the pattern. Look where Novak is on top of the baseline. Look where Root is. About 10 feet behind the baseline. Now this rally is going to drag on a little bit further. I just, I'm just going to skip to the end here. Novak goes with a forehand down the line again. You can see the court position hasn't changed all that much. And this time, Root again goes to the backhand slice defense. But this time, it's in the net. Let's talk about what Rude should have done in this situation. He should have ran around, ripped a forehand, and scampered up to the baseline to recover his court position off of his aggressive second serve return. He was shockingly passive. And you know against Novak that you're not going to do very well off of his first serve. He's dominated everyone in these conditions with his first serve. And he won 85% of his first serve points in this match. 33 for 39. You almost know that's going to happen. You know, Casper can't really do much about that. But second serve points won. Djokovic was 11 for 16. 69% second serve points won. 86 miles per hour average on those second serves. That was by far the worst part of Kasper Ruud's performance. I don't understand the passivity on that second serve return. Uh, it gave him no chance 
against Djokovic's serve. Novak was never broken. All right. Um, I do want to say I was encouraged by one thing I saw from Rude in this match, which is uh, Djokovic made some good returns to Casper's backhand. And, or, or I, I don't want to say good returns, but he made some returns to Casper's backhand. That was obviously an objective for Novak on the return. He wanted to stay away from that big plus one forehand. I thought there were a lot of occasions where Rude, to his credit, actually hit good plus one backhands. Um, instead of accepting neutrality, instead of relenting the advantage that he got from his serve, he was able to still attack even though Novak got it to his backhand. And, um, you know, there was one moment in the match. It was actually the second game of the match. Rude was serving and it was 30-40. Casper, um, Casper had a first ball backhand and he had a really strong uh, plus one backhand cross court, really great angle and ended up taking charge of the point. Uh, forcing an error with the big inside-out forehand. That was a moment where I'm like, the, the Rude of six months ago or a year ago, he's down a break. He's down a break already because there's no way that he's that assertive on the backhand. So that continued to be good. Um, all in all, uh, just kind of synthesizing Casper Rude's performance. I edge more... Again, and I've, this has happened every single time. Miami final against Alcaraz. Roland Garros final against Nadal. ATP final against Djokovic here. I felt the same way pretty much all three times. That it was not a perfect performance by Rude. That there were some issues. But all in all, he just... Uh, he wasn't going to be the better player. Uh, and his performances didn't leave me that disappointed. Uh, I lean far more towards the side of kind of patting Root on the back for getting that far. And I'm very, very encouraged by the things I've seen. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but there are improvements that he has to make moving forward in order to win these matches. Uh, so what I'm trying to say is I don't think he was ready to win any of these finals. And that's why... I don't think it's all that disappointing that he he comes out empty-handed uh, in all these big finals. He he wasn't able to win any. I don't really think he had what it takes to win any. You know, when we're talking about something like blocking the return or like uh, open stance backhand defense, these are things that he just really hasn't developed yet. So there's just work to be done, plain and simple. Djokovic, um, physically, I don't know what was going on this week. I've heard from some sources that I I can't fully trust that there is an eye infection. I'm not saying it's definitely like wrong. I'm just saying I'm not 100% on it. I've heard there was an eye infection, but he looked he looked sickly early on in this match. And I thought maybe there was going to be uh, some issues there. In fact, I thought he was in trouble, to be completely frank. But he served really well. He kept the points short. He weathered that early storm and he started to feel better. You know, things started to look normal. There was a laundry list of evidence that something was wrong. He was doubled over after a couple points. He was uh, 
bundled up in warmups and he was wearing a, a undershirt like thing that I've never seen him wear in my life. He was kind of shaking his head and saying, wow, uh, to, to his team, uh, before anything was going wrong in the match. Like it wasn't the tennis. Uh, he had the shaky hand thing when he put his towel to his face at the change of ends. He started eating and drinking incessantly at that uh, first in those first couple change events. Tons of evidence that Novak was not feeling well, but he did recover. Uh, the question is: Was some of Kasparud's passivity due to the fact that he thought he was dealing with a less than 100% Novak, and he actually wanted to drag out longer rallies, and that's why he was kind of allowing himself to drop back in court position and and play a lot of defense that just wasn't working. It's possible. I don't really think so. Because by the time the second set rolled around, it was clear Novak was fine and nothing changed on Kasper Ruud's side of the net. I just think that he was overwhelmed by Novak's pace and his depth and was getting pushed back. Um, wasn't able to be aggressive enough himself early in rallies. Uh, that, you know, part of that is his return strategy, you know, blocking those first serve returns, uh, being passive on those second serve returns. I just think he's getting, you know, pushed back and, and dictated. Um, I don't think it was like, I don't think it had anything to do with him falling prey into thinking that Novak was less than 100%. And by the way, if he did fall victim to that, line of thinking, it would have been mostly his fault because the answer pretty much always when you're facing a compromised opponent is to keep playing your game. Like There are slight exceptions, but pretty much you should keep playing how you play and that's going to give you the best chance. I think that covers everything here about the Djokovic-Rude final. So with that, let's go to report cards for this ATP Finals. I'm going to go in order of seeds. I'm going to run through this. I was actually supposed to do this with a guest. I'm not going to say who it was. Uh, because he, it would have been his first time on Monday Match Analysis. Very excited to talk to him later. Uh, at, at some point in the future. But he had a uh, little uh, emergency that he had to tend to. So another time. And I'm going to do this myself here. Report cards. We're going to go by seeds. Rafa Nadal. Number one seed. Again, giving them grades, 0 through 10. Nobody got a 0. Nadal didn't play very well. Being the worst server in this field wasn't going to help in these conditions. Forehand defense still had some issues, but expectations were low. The goal was to get matches in, and he did that while looking healthy. Plus, he got his win wasn't a win that I put tons of stock in, given the way Rude played that, given the mental dynamics there. But he did get his win. He did look a lot better. The end of this season was just kind of a lost cause for Rafa. And at the end of the day, he did exactly what I thought he'd do. He went 1-2. and two, He beat Rude. He lost to Felix. And he lost to Taylor Fritz. That's about what I thought. So, you know what? For going out there, getting matches in, and looking healthy, he gets a 5 out of 10. 
Number two seed was Tsitsipas. Couldn't snap his losing streak against Djokovic, but he did continue his successful tactics against Medvedev, a carryover from Cincinnati, and that's enormous. Then he went on to play Rublev first spot in the semifinal, played an incredible first set, lost the second set. I wasn't concerned with anything about how the second set played out, but the third set was a little bit disturbing. Tsitsipas losing his focus because of the family members in his box. And that kind of erased all of the positive feelings I was having about Stefano Tsitsipas's form. Because I was having those positive feelings. But the way he lost it leaves you with, uh, with a lot of negative feelings towards Stefano Tsitsipas's ATP finals. I think it's a 4 out of 10. Number three seed, Kasper Ruud. Serve was really impressive in these quick conditions. Backhand held up beautifully and wins over Felix and Fritz. His only group stage loss was to Nadal in a dead rubber that he didn't seem to even compete very hard in or want to win that badly. Then he beat Andre Rublev in Andre's favorite conditions, reversing a 4-1 to negative head-to-head against Rublev. Loses the final in straights, but ultimately, you can't ask for more from Kasparud. I give him a 9 out of 10 for this ATP Finals performance. And honestly, if he gave Djokovic a good fight uh, and a really you know great match and came close to winning, I probably would have given Rude a 10 out of 10. Number 4 seed, Daniil Medvedev. He lost all three matches. All in third set tie breaks. He served for two of the matches. On paper, 0-3 is shockingly disappointing. But you also can't ignore the fact that he could have just as easily gone 3-0. and He almost went 3-0. and And that's why what is on paper a catastrophic ATP Finals for Medvedev really wasn't quite that. That said, this is a results-based business, and he has himself to blame for a lot of the difficulties he had in those clutch moments. He gets a 3 out of 10. The number 5 seed, Felix Ojealiasim. Psychologically, it's a good thing to pick up that first victory over Rafa Nadal. I think especially with some of the things surrounding that head-to-head with Uncle Tony being his coach, I thought it was it was very healthy for him just to Get that win over Rafa. Even a compromised Rafa. It doesn't matter. In his opening match, he dropped it to Rude. He was looking a little bit sick. And he had some major backhand trouble in that one. Making the semifinal came down to a third set versus Taylor Fritz. And it was a tight match. Strangely, in that final set, his first serve just stopped working. It's disappointing that Felix didn't make the semis in this group. It was the weaker group. Felix coming in with the indoor hardcourt form that he was in uh, was potentially the favorite in this group. Uh, the favorite over Kasparud, Rafa Nadal, and Taylor Fritz. Uh, so it's kind of a disappointing that he didn't make the semifinals. That said, he did pick up one victory. A victory that I consider somewhat significant. And I definitely give him a little bit of a pass for the fatigue factor. I know he got a week off before this event, but the run that he went on in the events prior was just no joke. No joke at all. 
And if Felix was feeling burnt out at this stage, you really can't blame him. And I said that coming in. I said that before the tournament. So ultimately, um, I give Felix a 5 out of 10. Andre Rublev, the 6th seed. The way he played Medvedev was a huge breakthrough. I've never seen him show such tactical commitment, such a savvy presence in rallies. I was also impressed with his performance against Tsitsipas. The concern for Rublev is the margin of his two defeats. He could not challenge Novak Djokovic, but more importantly, he played his worst match of the event in the semifinal, just getting destroyed by Kasparud. And it's a disappointing trend continued for Rublev of these really big matches, him not really performing up to the level that he's capable of. But I do think Andre coming out of this group of death is a pretty big deal. He was coming into this event with a, you know, in a group with Tsitsipas, Medvedev, and Djokovic saying, you know, jokingly or half jokingly, I'd say, what am I doing in this group with these guys? Like, why am I in this group? And he comes out of the group. He makes the semis. It's a big deal. It's a bigger deal than his disappointing performance in the semis. And Rublev, I give a 7 out of 10, especially for that Medvedev win. That's massive. Seven seed was Novak Djokovic. He picked apart Tsitsipas and Rublev. But then after that, things got interesting. He got into this physical war against Medvedev. It looked like something was off physically, and it was very, very grueling. Anyways, somehow he wins it, despite the psychological dynamic really being not in his favor. He has to play his semifinal the next day. He only has 24 hours to recover from that really difficult physical match. And he doesn't have his best tennis against Fritsch, but he is supremely clutch. And he wins two tie breaks. Then he hits the final. Those physical issues lingered, but he pretty much found his best level against Rude. And comes away with a very clean and dominant performance in the final. Unsurprisingly, or I should say, very easily, Novak Djokovic gets a 10 out of 10. Lastly, you have Taylor Fritz. Nobody beat Taylor Fritz comfortably. He lost two matches, but in those two matches, he lost three tie breaks. A pair of breakers to Djokovic, a third set tiebreak against uh, who was that against? I'm blanking. Uh, third set tiebreak against uh, oh yeah, Rude. <laughs> um, so nobody nobody beat Fritz easily which is actually I, I think kind of a big deal. I didn't see anything out of Fritz that was out of the ordinary or was out of the norm for him. What I think this was, was Fritz showing that as the year-end number nine, he showed unequivocally that he belongs in this field, in this event. Now, yes, he got lucky to make it. He wouldn't have qualified if Carlos Alcaraz didn't tear his oblique. But from what we saw, once Fritz was there, he was right there. He was in that group. And for 
a player who's playing his first ATP Finals, who comes in as the year-end number nine, that's an enormous success. Taylor Fritz with an 8 out of 10. That is how we wrap up this ATP Finals. It's been a blast. I thank all of you for keeping up with the coverage. Um, mailbag on Wednesday. And uh, those are my only announcements. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.